Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have today to come together as your people, to be your people. Thank you for your provision to us, that you make it possible for us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you for your unchanging nature, Lord, but that you stoop down to our level so that we can be in relationship with you. We rejoice in that. We thank you for that. We also thank you for all the ways that you provide for this church on a regular basis, for all the ways that you provide for each of us on a regular basis, Lord. With all the uncertainty in the world, we know that you care for us, Lord. We thank you for that. I pray that you would forgive us for all the ways our faith falls short on a daily basis, Lord. Forgive us for looking to the things of this world as sources of satisfaction, Lord. Forgive us for the anger that we show when things don't go our way. Forgive us for our selfishness to one another, Lord. We pray that you would forgive us, that you would heal us, that we would walk in repentance and truly know you. Dear Lord, I ask for those in this congregation that are struggling with health challenges of different sorts, Lord. We pray for those that are dealing with mental health issues. We pray for those that are dealing with anxiety. We ask that you would be with those that are dealing with other health issues. We especially lift up Joan Walton as she goes through a decision-making process related to her cancer care, Lord. We pray that you would just give her the wisdom she needs to make the right decision for her situation, Lord. We pray for others that are dealing with ongoing medical issues that cause pain and discomfort, Lord, we ask that you would be with them as well. We also lift up other churches in our area. This morning we lift up Hope Community Church. I pray that you would be with that body of believers as they seek a new direction for their church, as they go through the, pro the process of looking for a new senior pastor, Lord, we just pray that you would be with them, that that church would be unified in its purpose. We also ask that you'd be with missionaries around the world, especially the Krognalis who are serving in Africa as medical missionaries, Lord, and just knowing all the, all the responsibilities that they have, Lord, we pray that you would surround them with the support staff that they need to be able to accomplish those responsibilities, specifically for a new field director and a new field accountant, Lord, we pray that you would provide for those needs. Lastly, Lord, we just pray that you would be with us today as we engage with your word and that we would be encouraged by it and that we would be challenged by it, that we would come to know you more fully through events that have taken place throughout history in which you have been at work. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As the children are, as we sing this hymn, the children can be dismissed to Children's Church. The hymn we will be singing is hymn number 66, To God Be the Glory.
All right, you may be seated. Thank you again for being here today. This week for our continuing sermon series through Exodus, we are going to be reading from Exodus chapter 3. Over the previous five weeks, we have heard how God is working to follow through on his promise to draw his people out of the darkness. We have talked about God a lot, God's promises, his awareness of what is going on and what he is doing about it. Those living the story of Exodus have not had any direct contact with God though. He is implicit, not explicit in the text. Their familiarity with God is minimal, bearing on non-existence. In today's verses, God takes seriously the idea that you never get a second chance to make a first impression. God introduces himself to Moses in a big way. The information he imparts about himself in this initial meeting is valuable for us. The Lord we worship is the Lord that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. We can grow in our knowledge of God through understanding what God tells Moses about himself in today's verses. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 3. We will read verses 1 through 15. Those verses will be projected on the screen behind me and they can be found on the Pew Bible in page 43. Let's read together in Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Now I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. God makes an unforgettable first impression in these verses. He shows up in a big way. Moses' life will never be the same after this meeting. God shows and tells Moses a bit about who he is. God is holy. God is unchanging. These two central attributes of God's character are summed up by his name. You can tell a lot about a person based on their name, can't you? If I told you, if I said... I met this woman named Laverne, or I met a woman named Shirley. You wouldn't picture a five-year-old girl. You'd picture an older woman. If I said, I have a friend coming to visit named Billy Bob, you would assume that guy is probably just a little bit country. The Lord, the God of your fathers, his name. God tells you a lot about who he is through the name he gives himself. I am. His name indicates his holy and unchanging nature. The first fact God communicates to Moses about himself is that he is holy. Before talking about the implications of God's holiness, we should take a moment to remind ourselves what it means that God is holy. Holy is not a descriptor we use frequently. This is appropriate. If we did use it regularly, we wouldn't be using it correctly. Lots of people and places can be described as good, pretty, or with a host of other adjectives. Holy, by definition, can only describe a very limited amount of things. I can't remember the last time I said holy in a conversation not focused on spiritual things. I actually don't know if I have ever used the word in a routine conversation. 
it feels sacrilegious to me to use the word in daily life. Unfortunately, about the only time you do hear holy used is when a person says someone is holier than that. I'm pretty sure that phrase was never spoken in a positive way. To be holy is to be set apart. It is a word that describes a special otherness. God is holy. God's holiness is his defining characteristic. It's a term used in the Bible to describe both his goodness and power. It's completely unique and utterly all-powerful, radiating from God like an energy, according to the Bible Project. Many people have pointed out that holy is the most important descriptor of God. Pastor Sam Storms says it well when he writes, the holiness of God only secondarily refers to his moral purity, his righteousness of character. It primarily points to his infinite otherness. To say that God is holy is to say that he is transcendently separate. Holiness is not one attribute among many. It is not like grace or power or knowledge or wrath. Everything about God is holy. Each attribute partakes of divine holiness. God's holiness, his complete overwhelming otherness, is dangerous to people who, unlike God, are not holy. We are common. Repeatedly, repeatedly in the Bible, God's holiness is associated with fire. People are drawn to fire. You see that in today's verses with Moses. He's, he's minding his own business, right? He's just out in the middle of nowhere, tending sheep, and he sees fire. He's like, what's going on over there? He wants to go see what the source of the fire is. Basically, Moses is rubbernecking, right? He's got a boring job. He's like, oh, there's some fire. Well, let's see what's up. So he goes over to check it out. He immediately notices this fire is different. It burns without consuming. While the fire is not consuming the bush, it is still dangerous. The first thing God says to Moses after calling them out of the burning bush is, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I often think about God's holiness as being similar to a nuclear reactor. The power is great in both circumstances. Being in the vicinity of a nuclear reactor or God without some sort of protection is not safe. God tells Moses to keep his distance. Whereas Christians today are supposed to draw close. Hebrews 4.16 says, We can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The source of this confidence needs to be remembered. 
our vulnerability due to our lack of holiness is compensated for through the grace provided by Christ. God is still holy in the same way he was when Moses was interacting with him. The grace that imparts holiness to us should not make us flippant about God being holy. It would be ridiculous for someone wearing one of those, you know, those huge radiation suits that they come out of working on a nuclear reactor and somebody says like, oh, that was probably, you know, a scary experience. You're wearing, and they're like, oh no, it wasn't a big deal. I felt, I felt totally fine. It's like, well, you only felt totally fine because you were wearing this protective suit. Concluding God's holiness isn't much of a threat when we are covered by grace is no less of a bizarre conclusion. We should be appreciative that grace means we can be in the presence of God's holiness. God's holiness is unchanged because he is unchanging. This is the second truth today's text points out. The Holy One speaking out of the burning bush is the same being that was worshiped by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses had some knowledge of the God his ancestors worshiped. We don't know exactly what he had heard. He was at least familiar with the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was probably aware God had supported and protected these patriarchs prior to their family coming to Egypt. Moses might have known about the promises that had been made by God. He almost definitely wouldn't have had access to any written text. This is not much information for Moses to go on, especially when you consider the religious climate of the time. There were many gods. Moses had been raised in Egypt. He would have been familiar with the horde of Egyptian gods. He would have known their names and their stories. Moses' own father was the priest, father-in-law was the priest of Midian. This polytheistic religious background provides the framework for the conversation Moses is having with God. In polytheism, the gods are the opposite of unchanging. They are fickle. In the same way humans are. Some of you might remember from middle school or high school when you learned about the Greek mythologies. You might remember that the high god in the Greek mythology was named Zeus. And there's a story in those mythologies of Zeus, he's married to another god, and I guess he gets frustrated with her, so then she's, she's pregnant, so then he eats her, eats the other god. And then he gets a really bad headache. So then another one of the gods takes an axe and cracks his head open. And then Athena, the daughter of Zeus, comes out of Zeus's fractured skull. And the most bizarre thing about this story is Zeus is ecstatic to see Athena. And I just picture, you know, like after you get hit in the head with an axe, it's never happened to me, but I appreciate it. I don't feel like that would feel good. So 
anyway, bizarre story there. The point being, this, that sort of story sums up how these pagan gods were thought of. These gods that did whatever they want. Because of the Jews' situation in Egypt, they probably believed they had made the capricious god of their forefathers angry. And that was why he had abandoned them. God is saying that he is different from all the other so-called gods Moses is familiar with. He doesn't change. Theologians call the unchanging nature of God his immutability. The implications of this concept are immense for all areas of life. The sociologist Rodney Stark makes the claim in his book, The Rise of Christianity, that the fact God could be relied upon to remain the same was the basis for the development of scientific thought in Enlightenment-era Europe. He argues that science arose only in Europe because only medieval Europeans believed that science was possible and desirable. And the basis of their belief was their image of God and his creation. If God was stable, if he didn't change, it stood to reason that the laws he put in place in the world would be stable as well. Science is the effort to know what the stable laws which were given by God. The idea that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever matters. On a personal level, God's immutability makes a big difference. It means God can be counted upon in a a way the capricious gods of paganism cannot be. This is important for Moses, who is being commanded by God to bet his life on God. God, who doesn't change, is a force bringing about change in the world. The world isn't operating as it should. God has seen the affliction of the Israelites. He has heard their cry. This world may seem immovable, but God is an unstoppable force. Part of the confusion people often have about God not changing is that it causes us to think of God as static. God is not static. His immutability is dynamic. He tells Moses, he has come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Nothing in this world can stop the unchangeable God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses isn't sure how to introduce the holy, unchanging God speaking to him from a fiery bush to others that haven't experienced him themselves. He knows 
What will happen if he shows up in Egypt saying, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent him? The Israelites will want to know more about who God is. They will want to know his name. The people were not going to follow an impersonal force. To some extent, this is reasonable. They didn't know who God was. Trust is built on relationship. A name is the most basic part of a relationship. You can't be in a relationship with somebody that you don't even know their name. Moses needed to be able to tell them a name for God. The problem with knowing God's name is finding a name that can appropriately identify God without limiting him. The people Moses is going to speak with already have a limited idea of what God could be. A name would be the first step in the people circumscribing God. After knowing a name, they would want to know what God looked like. After that, the next question would be, where did he come from? Eventually, they would want to know how he was created. In the end, the people would think God was just one more pagan deity. God is too holy for a name. He cannot be understood in the same way many gods that were worshipped at the time could be understood. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob refuses to be limited by a name. At the same time, he understood the people's relational need for one. The name God gives himself tells everyone who is listening who he is without limiting himself. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God's name sums up his holiness and unchangingness. He is totally other. Every living thing defines itself in relation to other living things in the surrounding environment. God does not. He is self-defining. God doesn't say, I was who I was, or I will be who I will be. God is not a figment of the past. He is not in process. He is an, ex an eternal reality existing outside of all time and space. He doesn't change because nothing has the ability to change him. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God is re frequently referred to by the name he shares with Moses. When you're 
when you're reading your English versions of the Old Testament and you see Lord written with all capital letters, it is a fill-in for the name Yahweh, which means I am. Although the Jews, they never said this name out loud. For them, it was too holy. Just to write the name of God when a scholar was copying scrolls by hand, they went through a ritual to prepare themselves. So every time they would come across the name, they would have to go through this ritualistic practice to prepare themselves. That's how seriously they took it. For Jews, the name God had given himself was the basis. It was the starting point for knowing God. In the Gospel of John, Yahweh, as the name of God, takes center stage. Jesus says, I am seven times. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. With these statements, Jesus is saying that he is God. This is why the religious leaders at the time get so angry. They know what he is claiming. The fact that John records Jesus saying he is the I am seven times is intentionally symbolic. Seven is a number that symbolizes perfection and completeness. In Christ, the God who spoke from the burning bush has made himself known more fully. He is still unchanging and holy. Nothing is different in this regard. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. People often yearn after an experience similar to what Moses had. They want that burning bush experience. They want to know God. In Christ, we have a more extensive revelation of the holy and unchanging I am. Those who know Jesus know God, the great I am. God wants to be known. It is the reason he appeared before Moses in the wilderness. The Bible is the story of him making himself progressively more known. The obstacles that must be overcome are immense. God is holy and unchanging. We are not. God will not be stopped. There is no barrier that can withstand the unstoppable force that is God. We cannot wrap our minds around who God is. We have to be consumed by who God is. God's desire to be known is the reason Jesus came to find us in our own spiritual wilderness. Those who know God through Jesus, know the great I am. God will not stop 
finding world ways to let the world know who he is until every knee bows and every tongue confesses to the great I am. Let's pray. Dear Lord, the name by which you name yourself in this interaction with Moses is intentionally awe-inspiring. Because it must be. Because you are holy, you are other, you are unchangeable. And Lord, I, I pray that you would give us some sense of that. That we would have a sense that with all our knowledge, all our theology, everything that you have given us that we still cannot fully comprehend or even getting close to comprehending the holiness, the otherness of who you are, Lord. But you are drawing us to yourself that we might know you more fully, Lord. I pray that we would exhibit that desire in all areas of our life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.